So I have a pastor friend of mine who has got uh, three kids that I joke with him all the time that if our children grow up to be anything like his, I will be one of the most blessed men on the face of planet Earth because I have no idea how one man can have three children with such differing personalities and yet all of them turn out to be like model children. Um, and he was telling me a story one day. His, his oldest child is a girl, um, has been uh, dating the guy that is her boyfriend for I think a little bit over a year now and he told me a story of how they got together. A good Christian guy, fantastic Christian girl. Um, anyway, he said they were out eating at the Mexican restaurant one night and the guy that she is now dating was sitting at a table, you know, half the restaurant away. And unbeknownst to them, uh, they were having a conversation at this guy's table. It was him and his parents that uh, prom was coming up and he wanted to go but he didn't know who to take he didn't he didn't know of any girls that he felt comfortable taking because he wanted somebody that that loved Jesus and that was a good girl and he said I don't know anybody and, and his parents look over there and said well there's there's so and so she's a great girl why don't you go ask her and he and he just kind of laughed and his mom and dad said, what are you laughing about? He said, she ain't going to want to have anything to do with me. He said, she's like up here, and I'm not. <laughs> like he, he kind of thought of her as a little bit above him. And his parents looked at him and said, well, you know what? You'll never know if you don't take your shot. Get. So he got up from his table, and he walked over. And I'm, I'm, I'm seeing these people in my head, so I'm trying not to say names because I don't want to, like, put somebody else's business out there. But he gets up and he walks over to the table. Doesn't have to introduce himself. They already know each other, so haze and pleasantries were exchanged. And he says, hey, I just wanted to know if you, if you, you know, want to come with me and be my date to prom. And she went, sure. Cool, okay. And he goes back to his table, not quite sure what just happened. And little did he know that this so impressed this girl that he would have the guts to get up and walk across the dining room. She didn't just want to go to prom with him. She was all right dating him. And he's talking to her dad, and her dad finally told him, I hope you understand that your courage in that moment to do something uncomfortable is what got you where you are right now. Always be that guy who is willing to step up and do something out of your comfort zone, to be courageous. Well, today we are going to read a passage in Revelation that has to do with exactly what that guy did. Seeing something that you value and being willing to be courageous and lay hold of it, even in the face of potential what everybody might call failure. We're going to read Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to read verses 2 through 8. And you'll see, hopefully by the time we get to the end of it, why I decided to name this sermon, No Cowards Allowed. No Cowards Allowed. So, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, we're going to look 
at verse 2. If you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And, him who and he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Father, I pray that you'll bless us to understand this and to take it to heart this morning. Uh, and help us to not be cowards, but to be courageous and to lay hold of the kingdom that you promised us and shrink back for nothing. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, uh, this morning as we look at a sermon about uh, the, the future world, um, you know, I sat to myself when I, when I started prepping this sermon, and I said, you know, I, I really would like, I said, Jesus, if, if that's the way you want me to go, I'm going to go there. But I really don't want a sermon about heaven to be just another sermon of think how neat it's going to be. Like, I, I, I really would like to be able to tell my people, here's how we should live in, in light of this. Yeah, I mean, yes, obviously, heaven's going to be neat. Is there anybody here who didn't know that before I said it? We, no? Okay, all right, cool. We all understand heaven's going to be pretty cool. We all want to end up there. That sermon's already preached. That would be preaching to the people in these chairs back here. I, don't, I didn't really want to preach that sermon. Though. Jesus, I will if you want, or if you want me to. Uh, but thankfully, that's not the way he wanted me to do it. Um, we're going to look at this place, and we're going to look at this world order. We're going to look at why it is the way it is. And then we're going to look at the people who get to inhabit it. Because there's a specific group of people who get to live in the new heaven and new earth. And there's a specific group of people who don't. And there is a reason that they don't. So we're going to talk about the world the way it is and then why those people get to live there and why the others don't. And first I want us to see that God's going to build his future city. That God is going to build his future city. Look at verse 2. John says, uh, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, now I want to stop right there uh, and talk just about verse 2. And say that, you know, I read a lot of commentaries on this week. There are some commentators who think that this city coming down from heaven uh, is just symbolic. It's, it's a metaphor for the church because throughout the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. So when we see John say, uh, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband, uh, what, what John's actually seeing is the church descending from heaven in all her splendor. The problem that I have with that is that throughout the rest of this book, this city seems to function like an actual literal city, that there are people coming in and out of it. And if, it's, if this is the eternal state and this is the church, what does it mean that people are coming in and out of the church as a, as a group in eternity? That doesn't make sense to me. 
that, that I don't understand how, how you say the gates of the church, the gates of this group of people will never be shut because it'll never be night there. People are going to come in and out. Like that, no, that sounds more like an actual city to me. That In the rest of the book, it functions that way. And this city descends from heaven and is prepared by God. Um, so, so what can we learn from verse 2 right here? Well, first, uh, the Bible is full of caution against building earthly kingdoms. Isn't it? Uh, history is littered with the remains of castles uh, and empires. Uh, one of the first instances we see of humanity trying to build a city that accomplishes this, we've seen it several times in Revelation, it's the city of Babel in Genesis 11. Uh, and this is not on your handout, but uh, Genesis 11, 1 through 5. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Their idea is that we're going to build this city and we're going to build our way back to where we were before we got kicked out of Eden. That's the idea. Is that humanity used to live at this midpoint that if you look throughout Scripture, Eden was almost kind of like a mountain temple kind of thing. And when you look, it's like you've got the heavenlies up here where you've got angelic beings and you've got God and then you've got Eden down here that's humanity and all the animals and you see the angels and God interacting with the humans in Eden. When the humans are kicked out of Eden, you know, you constantly see them kind of going down and going away. So Eden is kind of this midpoint of the Venn diagram where heaven meets earth and when they get kicked out of Eden, they go down, they're off the mountain and now that they're down in the plain of Shinar, they want to build this city and build their way back up. And they want to make their way back up to the heavens. And so they have this grand project that they're going to glorify themselves by building a city and building a tower. And so uh, they say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But then in a funny twist, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Their idea was to build a tower which is in the heavens and it's so tiny that God says, I've got to come down here and just even get a look at it. Like you're, you're nowhere near building a tower. This is, now that's a rhetorical device. That doesn't mean that God couldn't see it if he didn't come down. But this is just a way to show you like God has a lot easier time coming, coming down to us than we have building our way up to him. Like he, he can do that a lot easier than we can do it the other way. That how, how did Babel end? Did it end well? No, it doesn't end well. It's called Babel because their God confused the languages of everybody and, and it just kind of ends as an unfinished project. Babel failed. Jesus warned himself personally against doing this. In Matthew 6, verses 19, 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That Jesus says it doesn't matter if you build earthly kingdoms and you build up earthly wealth right now, eventually it's going to fade. It's going to fall apart. It's going to rust. It's going to break. It's going to be stolen. It's going to be bug eaten. It's going to fail. So if you build it here, now, and I'm not telling you don't build, okay? I'm not telling you that don't go out and plant things and plant trees and, and, and build stuff and improve the world that you live in. I'm not saying don't do that. 
I'm just saying don't put your eternal stock in doing that because one day it's going to fall apart. You know, my previous pastor before I came here used to say, you buy all those trinkets and knickknacks and doodads and put them in your house because they think they're going to bring you joy and all, that's going to, all it's going to produce is your kids fighting over them when you die. That's, that, that, that's all it's going to do. That, that's their end. Is who gets what. Because you're not taking it with you. And that's Jesus' point. Is that you're laying stuff up here where you're not going to get to enjoy them forever. It's going to pass away. And then one day that personal kingdoms will end. In Luke 12, verses 16 through 21, Jesus spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this, and I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I'll store all my crops and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, isn't that funny? Have you ever laughed at that? In the middle of this parable, this guy says, I, you know, I'll say to my soul, soul. He's just talking to himself and calls his name out. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. Now, by the way, in the Bible, that's a technical term. That doesn't just mean a stupid person. In the Bible, a fool is someone who does not consider God in the decisions that they make. That they have just not included God at all in their decision-making process. God says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What all of these three passages have in common is that all three of those groups of people could be classified as what the Bible called fools. They did not consider God. They did not consider the eternal. They considered this world to be all that they had and the best they could get. So they invested everything into it and put all their time and all their effort into building worldly kingdoms, worldly bank accounts, worldly cities, things that last and persist here and here alone. And they were not storing up anything in heaven. Compare that to the city that John just saw. Where did that city come from? Did that come from the earth up or from heaven down? That came from heaven down. Did people prepare it or did God prepare it? God prepared it. God set it up as a heavenly city, as a permanent fixture on the new creation of earth. What is the risk of moth or rust destroying or thieves breaking in and stealing from this city? None. None whatsoever. Instead, what the Bible teaches us to do is to hold this earth loosely and store up treasure in the city to come. And that city belongs to those who valued it more than earthly life. That's what I want to get at here. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. This is on your time or your handout. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises. There were things that God promised them that they didn't receive on earth. And they were okay with that. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Embraced them. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Do you see that the, the fact that God prepared a city for them, the people that city belongs to, is the people who wanted to live there more than they wanted to live here? God spent all this time preparing this city for the people who actually want to be there. And how did John describe this city when he saw it? As a bride adorned for her husband. Fellas, I see y'all in here. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember the doors in the back of the church opening up? The first time you saw her? I near about died. I near about died. Think about the, the comparison between this city and your wife, fellas, the day that you saw her. Been waiting for this city. All of us as Christians, we've been waiting for this city our whole lives. This is what we want. This is what we're waiting on. We've been waiting for that city our whole life. Fellas, first time you saw your wife, that's who I've been waiting on. That's who I've been waiting on my whole life. Ladies, when it was your wedding day, did you spend five minutes getting ready for those doors to open? No. You were up at the actual crack of dawn. Like the lady with the, the straightening iron or the curling hairs hit the, hit the off button on your alarm. They were there. And you were getting your hair done. You were getting your makeup done. You were making sure there wasn't anything wrong with your dress. The last minute pins, your, your makeup, your, your, all your stuff that y'all do to get ready that I don't even know what it is. I, I, I don't. You probably spent more time getting ready for that 25-minute ceremony than you've spent for anything else in your life, haven't you? Y'all, God built the world in seven days. He spent 2,000-plus years on the city. prepared. God spent time on it. And as a result, fellas, when those doors opened, she was the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen, wasn't she? There is a reason why when you go to the wedding, right, you're sitting in the seats. It's not an event when the, when the, when the guy walks out. He just kind of comes out the door to the side and just stands there. Now, since being a pastor, I have since come to appreciate that moment as one of the more fun moments of the day. Because the guy standing there, y'all on the video aren't going to be able to see this. The guy standing there behind the door, and from here up, he's stationary. But down here, he's doing this. His knees are shaking. He's quaking a little bit. And I said, there's been one wedding out of all the weddings I've done that that has not been true. One wedding out of all the weddings I've done that has not been true. But then he just kind of walks out, and he just kind of stands here, right? There's no event. People keep talking. They keep chatting. They keep texting on their phones. They might snap a picture of the pretty flowers because nobody's snapping a picture of the pretty man. But then the mama turns around and looks back, and she stands up. And that big note of the bridal march on the piano hits. Maybe the organ plays, and everybody does what? They stand up and everybody turns and looks back and the husband either falls out or cries and the wife's boo-hooing and her, you know, daddy's walking her down the aisle and she is the focus. 
because she's the prettiest lady in the room. That's exactly what this city is like. That when, when, when John sees this city, everything shuts down. He's never seen anything like it in his life. Nobody's looking at anything else. Nobody's looking at anybody else. That he has never seen anything like it in his life. This is the, the place he's been waiting for. The life he's been waiting on. God spent 2,000 plus years preparing it. All of the, the pain and the heartache and the waiting and the, the shenanigans of this life just kind of go out of the way. I've told every single married couple that I've counseled and, and, and prepared for a wedding, I'm like, y'all, don't worry about the umpteen things that are going to go wrong during the rehearsal and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and somebody's going to say something that's going to tick you off and this is going to go wrong and this is going to go wrong and this is going to go wrong and you're afraid you're going to have a horrible wedding. I promise you, when the back door's open and y'all see each other, you're not going to worry about anything else. The exact same thing with the city. That it's what they've been waiting on. And then finally, why is John so excited? She's his permanent home. Before Emily and I got married, I told our pastor, I said, I'm super excited about being married because I'm tired of having to leave, to leave my home and go back to my house. You know, I'd go visit Emily, I'd go see her, but clearly we're not married, so we're not living in the same place. But the only way I could describe it was I'm tired of leaving my home to go back to my house. This is home. Permanent home. The place we can always come back to, the place that's ours, somewhere that's faithful, somewhere that's true, somewhere that's dependable, the place that was meant for us, like a bride adorned for her husband. This is God's future city that he's building. That, 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 that's what Christians have to look forward to. And not only then... But God doesn't, God's not just going to build His future city. God's also going to ordain His future order. When you look at verse 3, John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their guide, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So just looking through this, some of the questions and things that popped into my mind, as I asked the question, it says the tabernacle of God is now with men. Hadn't it been that way before? Hasn't the tabernacle of God been with men before? And if so... Because by the way, the answer is yes. The tabernacle of God has been with men before. So what is different now? What's different about this tabernacle compared to the tabernacle that was with men before? Why did the, the heavenly announcer see fit to point that out? And the voice from heaven emphasizes that what makes this different is God himself. And we'll talk about why that's different. It says that tears and death and sorrow and crying and pain are part of a group of former things that have passed away. It, yeah, we get this flowery sentence uh, ourselves that says, for the former things have passed away. In Greek, it's very anticlimactic. It's three words. It's just like, yeah, those things are gone. It's not poetic. It's not flowery. It's just, they're gone. 
They're an afterthought. Like they're not even worth spending a lot of time on. So what are the differences between this old tabernacle and this new one? Well, the old tabernacle, the Greek word for it is, is skene, and the Hebrew word for it is shekin. Now shekin, you should probably, if you, if you read your Old Testament and, and you've listened to uh, folks, and any of y'all ever done the, uh, maybe the Beth Moore study on the, the tabernacle? Y'all ever done that? I know that was a very popular one uh, years ago. Y'all ever heard the word Shekinah? And, and people talk about that as though it's the special, like the, the utmost glory of God. Well, Shekinah is, it's a special word. It doesn't mean like God has varying levels of glory and the Shekinah is the tallest one. Shekinah glory comes from the Hebrew word Shekin which is the word for tent. And the reason that you've got God's Shekinah glory is that, okay, y'all tell me, where does God live? Where is He right now? In us, does that mean He's not in these pews? Does that mean He's not present in this building? If, if He's in us, is He not out there? If he's out there, does that mean he's not in space? No. We, none of us would say there is a specific location that God dwells, and because he dwells there, he doesn't dwell anywhere else. One of the attributes of God that we recognize is omnipresence, right? He's everywhere at one time. You know, if I make my, if I, if I make my bed in the depths, you were there. If I rise on wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will find me. You know, the, the psalmist writes those words to basically say there's no... Ask Jonah if there's somewhere you can go that God is not. He will definitively tell you, you cannot get away. He's everywhere. But what the Shekinah glory of God is, this was, is when God instructed Israel to build the tabernacle. He gave them the instructions. Inside the tabernacle, there was a room. We know it as the Holy of Holies. It was the room in which the Ark of the Covenant sat that the high priest could only go in once a year. It was the literal holiest place on earth. And it required extensive purification and atonement of the high priest for him to enter even once a year. The penalty for doing so improperly was death. God promised His people, I will meet with you there between the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That is the seat of my presence among your people. The Shekinah glory is the tent glory of God. The tabernacle glory of God. That even though God is everywhere on earth, everywhere in the cosmos, all at one time, in a special way, God met with His people and was present with, him, with them there. That's what the Shekinah glory of God is. It's that unique presence. And Solomon understood this when he dedicated the temple. You can find this in 1 Kings 8, verses 27 through 29. God, or Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So Solomon said, I know that you exist everywhere all at once. But I'm asking you, Lord, in the way that you did in the tabernacle, be present in this temple in a special way so that when your people approach you here, you will hear. And when you hear, you will forgive. The Solomon recognized that. The tabernacle, in addition to being the place where God met with his people, was also a place of death, was it not? There was a lot of death at the tabernacle. And we don't think about that. We always have the clean, pristine pictures and models that show everything nice, bronzy, shiny. And we always show the priests, I guess we show the priests early in the morning before they go to work. Priestly garments were all white linen, but they weren't at the end of the day. Because what did the priests spend all day doing? Sacrificing. At the end of the day, they would have been caked in blood. They would have been covered in it. That you would walk by the tabernacle and hear the lowing of cattle and the bleeding of goats and sheep as they were being slaughtered sacrificially. You would have heard the sounds of death when you walked past it. You would see it when you went there because when you brought a sacrifice, you laid your hand on its forehead as the priest slit its throat. So, Josh, that's a little disgusting. Yes. Yes, it is. That's the point. When you went to the tabernacle, you were aware of two things. One, God is here. He's in there. He meets with us in the Holy of Holies. But two, there are a few problems between me and Him. One, there's a big old curtain that keeps me from getting in there to Him to let me know that there's a barrier between me and Him. And second... I can't even get this close to him because of sin without something dying in my place because I deserve for that to happen to me. So that's why when I come to the tabernacle, I know that it is the place where God meets with us and it's also a place of constant bloody death. Because to come into the presence of God sinfully, that's what happens. Death. Something's got to die. Either you or a substitute. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. If the blood of bulls and goats could have taken them away, they would have stopped offering. But they didn't. They couldn't. They had to offer them over and over and over and over and over and over and over. I've got a guy in this church that I meet with that's been phoned regularly. Uh, or recently that I meet with once a week he's reading through the Bible he's never read a lot of it before and he hit Leviticus and he called me one Monday and said Josh and 
it seems like there's a lot of blood in this book. And I said, good, you're reading it right. It's really violent. I said, yeah, sin stinks, doesn't it? We don't take it that seriously. No, we don't. So ask yourself, who's really the, the unspiritual barbarians, us or them? Yeah, they were slaying the animals, but they had a, a good understanding of what sin does. We don't slay the animals, and we treat it like it's not a big deal. Now, I'm not arguing that we slay the animals. One greater than bulls and goats has been slain for us. But I'm saying because that's not in front of us every day, it's easy for us to be desensitized to the seriousness of what it was that caused Jesus to be killed. Death was necessitated by the sins of both the priests and the people. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That without the shedding of blood, without death, sin could not be forgiven. This is all the old world. This was the tabernacle. This was the old order. That God was there, but He was sealed off from you. Only specific people could get to Him. And then only once a year. And the closest you could get to Him required the death of an animal for you to even get close enough to see the curtain that you couldn't go behind. That's the old order. Now what about the new? God's glory that was previously restricted to the holiest place in the tabernacle is now permanently available to all of the citizens of this city. It doesn't say that His priests will be with us. That his priests will wipe away the tears from our eyes. John emphasized over and over and over again, God himself will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That there is no separation anymore between him and his people. How is that possible? Well, Matthew 27, 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. That's how. Sin's been dealt with. It's exactly like the author of Hebrews said. If the sacrifices sufficed for the forgiveness of sins, then wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? This is why when we pull up to church on Sunday morning, you don't see Jimmy Williams and Jimmy Prescott out in the back in white linen ephod slaughtering cows before we come into church. We don't need sacrifices anymore. We don't need priests anymore. Catholics say priests. Uh-oh, -uh, I got one. His name's Jesus. I don't need another one. Jesus' blood was enough to put an end to sacrifices. We don't have any altar. Folks call this an altar up here where folks kneel and pray. I don't like that. That's not an altar. We don't offer blood sacrifices up here. You can say we offer the sacrifice of praise and prayer. Yes, I understand that. You can do that. I'm not going to fight over it. I'm just saying that the altar would have meant something totally different to a Jew. The altar meant where you slayed the sin offering. No, that's where we slayed the sin offering. Right there. That's why the tabernacle of God can be with men and why there's, why there's no more veil. There's complete and total access to God. 
If God dwells there permanently with all of His people, there must be no sin to bar them from His presence. So the logical conclusion, if there's no more death, the, the logical conclusion of this, if there's no more sin, all the death, all the pain, all the tears, all the suffering, all the sorrow in the world today exists because sin exists in this world. If there is no sin, there's none of the rest of that. Your hip pain, your knee pain, your neck pain, sin. Your death, your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunts, your uncles, their death, sin. Sickness, sin. Sorrow, sin. Tears of sadness, sin. And I'm not pointing to a specific sin. I'm not saying you did this, therefore you got this. I'm saying Adam and Eve bit fruit off a tree and listened to a snake instead of God. And ever since then, the world has been going off the rails more and more and more every day. But in a new world where sin is not present, guess what else is not present? Anything that comes from it. So now you have something that doesn't make sense in the current world order. You can have the tabernacle of God with no death. That God places the seat of His power right here on earth as people and He walks with us. He talks with us. He tells us He is His own. He dwells with us. He wipes the tears from our eyes. That there is no more of that anymore. Hebrews 10, 11-18, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. See, when we read this passage, we always think about the fact that there's no more death for us. But there's no more death for the sacrifices either. They're not being killed. See, death affects more than just us. Death has affected the entire creation. It doesn't mean that there's just no more death for us. It means nothing dies. That almost doesn't even make sense to us right now. Like, we can't process that. Death and taxes, right? Not always. God's going to ordain His future order. The world's going to be totally different. Our relationship with Him will be totally different. Our relationship with each other will be totally different. The way the world works will be totally different. And finally, God's going to call His future people. And He said to me, and this is very clearly Jesus, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, now this is almost unexpected, this list. Because it's not exhaustive, is it? There are a lot of sins that are not on this list. So, why specifically this? 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You remember the story I told you all at the beginning of the sermon? About the guy who, who, who asked the, asked the Jesus-loving girl out to prom, that he showed courage, that he said, do you know what? I might get embarrassed. She might say, uh-uh, who are you? Why would, I go do, why, why would I go with you? What impressed her was that he did it anyway. He shot a shot. He made his move. What happens if he sits at his table and goes, oh, no, I don't really want to deal with the possibility of rejection. I don't really want to get into all that. Who goes with him? Might not be anybody. Certainly won't be her. A lack of courage has real costs. And we as a church better listen to this very clearly right now. Not just you, but me. Me too. There's a difference between us as Stapleton Baptists saying, showing up with masks on and sitting in distance, y'all, that's not fear. That's taking care of our neighbors. But if the state ever tells this church, we don't care if you wear masks, we don't care if you distance, it's okay if there's 25 people at a time in the jet down the street, but you can't have more than 10 in there. If the state ever tells us that, I'm going to need 11 of y'all to come in here. You understand? Y'all, to, to quote some guys I read this week, early Christians were literally sawn in half. Nero lit his dinner parties by dousing Christians in tar, putting them in cages, and lighting them on fire alive for entertainment while he and his guests ate for the crime of being nothing more than a Christian. We were lion food in the Circus Maximus. We were slaughtered in mass by the Romans for being atheists because we did not worship gods recognized as members of the Roman pantheon. Three Christian men in Nigeria were executed this week by gunshots from AK-47s at point-blank range because they had the gall to suggest that someone give their life to Christ and convert. And we're afraid of misdemeanors? Now, I have no problem wearing masks and gathering together. That's not cowardly. That's doing what we talked about a few weeks ago when I said, you know, if you've got an ox and it's got a history of goring people, let's put up a pen so the ox can't get out and hurt somebody. We know that this virus can kill folks. That's why we wear masks. That's why we've got bale twine. That's why we've got hand sanitizer and the most holy offering bucket and tape on the pews. That's why we've got all this stuff. That's not me being scared. That's just me being prudent. 
But when the threat is no longer a virus and the threat is an officer coming out of here and marching you down here to the Jefferson County Law Enforcement Center because you committed the crime of showing up to church, that's a different matter entirely. Welcome to 2020. It has arrived. And the first thing I'm going to do when I go home is I'm going to check and I'm going to see if this man is still walking. I'm going to open the news and I'm going to see if they arrested John MacArthur because he refused to be cowardly. Jesus does not take kindly to cowardice. If you look at the first few verses right here, and I'm, I'm wrapping up quickly. If you look at the first couple of verses, 6 through it looks like 7, these are callbacks to the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 through 3. Chapters 2 and 3, rather, I should say. Most, if not all, of those phrases come from the promises that Jesus made to the various churches. But then when you get to the verses after that, this caution to avoid cowardice is a callback to all of those who shrank away from the faith that they pro pro professed under the reign of the beast. That the beast says, you take my mark, you bow to me, you worship me, you trust me, you depend on me to provide for you, you depend on me to protect you. And there are going to be a lot of people during that that are afraid of being cranially challenged when I say that, I mean that they're afraid of the beast removing the head from the rest of their body, which happens to a good number of Christians during this, thanks to the suggestion of the false prophet that they be killed. There are a bunch of folks who profess to be Christians who go, I like my head being connected to the rest of me, so I don't care if you put a stamp on it. Just let me live. I don't, I, don't, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do that. I don't have to. I mean, I've never seen Jesus anyway, but I see this guy, and Jesus is not going to kill me. Jesus is, he'll, if Jesus is real, he'll forgive me for this anyway, right? And right here, Jesus says, no, you don't get a place in the kingdom. You profess to follow me, but you're not just cowardly. You're also, what's the word right after it? Unbelieving. These are not Christians that are having their salvation stripped from them. These are people who claim to be Christians who never believed in the first place. And when push came to shove and they had to make a decision to be courageous or be cowards, they proved who they were by shrinking back. That city does not belong to them. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. Then Hebrews 11:32 32 through 40. And what more shall I say? 
For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Scripture never promised that we would have it easy and that we would not suffer. Much the opposite. Jesus promised that we would and says, don't shrink back. When it comes, not if it comes. If they tell you you can't, you can't have more than 10 people at church, bring at least 11. If they tell you you can't sing, give them amazing grace. There's a difference between loving our neighbors and loving this world. And Jesus says you can do one and you don't have to do the other. In fact, if you do one, whichever one, and you do it right, you can't do the other. If you love this world, you won't love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor truly, you won't love this world. You can't do them both. So I just want to encourage you. Miss Joyce is about to come lead us in an invitation here. There is a world coming that is better than this one. But it doesn't belong to the cowardly. It doesn't belong to the unbelieving. It doesn't belong to those who would rather have the favor and peace of this world than have what Jesus has prepared for us. The city's like a bride adorned for her husband. But if you don't have the courage to say, hey, that bride will pass you right by. I don't want that for you. And Jesus doesn't want that for you either. So if you've never given your life to Christ, now's the time.